I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. You can follow us at Open Mind TV, and you can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted today to welcome the co-authors of a new Oxford University Press volume, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Co-authors and scholars, Lawrence Eppard and Mark Rank join me today. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having us. Mark, let me ask you to begin with. In answering that question, what is the central thesis in terms of what Americans poorly understand about being poor in America and maybe also about being poor internationally? We're in the midst of this global pandemic. Yeah, well, I think there's uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, myths and misunderstandings that we take on in the book, and I guess the the first one that we start with is um, <clears throat> is a pretty important one, and that is that in the United States, uh, most people think that poverty will happen to somebody else, that it won't happen to me, um, that it's really an issue of them rather than an issue of us. And what we show um, right off the bat is that actually, across the course of people's lives, the majority of Americans will experience poverty at some point during their adulthood. So uh, between the ages of 20 and 75, 60% of Americans will fall below the official poverty line, and three quarters will fall into poverty or near poverty. So this is this is one of the, the big misconceptions that's out there, that oh, poverty is something that affects somebody else. It turns out that a majority, a vast majority of Americans will actually encounter poverty firsthand. Lawrence, your book is contending that poverty in America is rather chronic and customary and not at all unusual what would you add to Mark's commentary on that thesis about the commonality of poverty in the American experience today? Well, one thing I would add is just a related misconception that I think a lot of people have when they think about how common it is, how widespread it is, and you use the word chronic. I think a lot of people think, well, because it's so widespread, then it must be sort of permanent and there are people there forever. So, it's chronic and it's widespread and it's sort of ever present in the U S for a variety of reasons. One is that, you know, you can't just grow yourself out of having poverty. You need jobs spread out through the country. You need good educational institutions. You need good social policies, et cetera. Um, so, you know, that's one issue. Mark in the book talks a lot about sort of the presence of jobs. Um, but the issue, the, the sort of related misconception that I wanted to get to was the idea that because of this, people are there permanently that's actually not true. And we address that in the book. Uh, most people who enter into poverty, if you look at, you know, how long does it take for them to escape above the poverty line, a slight majority actually do so within a year and a strong majority do so within two or three years. So uh, it is widespread. It is chronic um, in terms of the way that it afflicts our country. And that's for a variety of you know, institutional and structural failings. But people fight really hard to get out. Um, in the book, we talk about this metaphor that other folks have used. We didn't uh, create this, but this metaphor of if you walk into a hospital today and you take a look around and you see, you know, the people who are there and who are being treated, 
a lot of those people are chronically ill and they have some very serious problems. If you come back three weeks from now, um, you'll see a lot of those same people. And, and the impression it gives you is, well, gosh, like there are just certain people who visit a hospital and certain people who don't. Well, what you miss there are the many, many people who have come and gone in that time period that you don't see because they've left the hospital, right? So that, that's sort of one related misconception that I would really want to underscore, which is, yes, it's a problem that afflicts our society. Um, it's something that we don't deal with well in terms of social policy. But once people enter it, they fight and they get out of it rather quickly. So um, it's a structural condition. It's a structural failing that we need to address. And I would, I would just add on to that, that another way of thinking about this is that the, the reach of poverty is really wide, but its grip is relatively weak. So poverty affects a wide swath of the population. But again, as Lawrence was pointing out, for most folks, they're in poverty for a year or two, get out of poverty, and then maybe experience another spell of poverty down the road. That that's um, very much the typical pattern as opposed to folks that are there for year in and year out. Let's be straightforward about the problem, though. In the last decade, in the period from 2000. 11 to 2021, there seems to be evidence that poverty has worsened, that childhood hunger has worsened, um, that these are, if chronic, epidemic in a lot of communities. Mark, does the data substantiate the rise of poverty over the last decade? Yeah. And in fact, um, I, I think you bring up a really good point. Um, one of the things that researchers have found is that uh, what's known as extreme poverty. So that means, you know, falling below half of the poverty line, which, you know, for a family of, of four last year, it was around twenty-five, twenty-six thousand dollars $26,000. So this be folks falling below $13,000. Um, that the, the, the percent of the poor that fall into the extreme poverty um, category has been increasing over time. So I think that that's right. Um, we see that um, over, over, particularly over the last decade, more and more people are economically vulnerable and economically at risk of experiencing poverty. Just how exacerbated was the crisis prior to the pandemic and if you look at just the sheer hard data, what evidence do we have that it's become even more acute in these last 12 months? Yeah, um, I know there's some there's been work um, at Columbia that's looked at this question in terms of how the pandemic has exacerbated um, poverty. Mark, um, before you even get there, though, yeah, tell our listeners about the trend over these last five or 10 years and, you know, how you ascertain if and when certain public policies already were exacerbating poverty in America. Yeah. So, um, you know, if we look at the overall rate of poverty in the United States, and, and this is over the last 30 or 40 years, it's varied between 10 and 15 percent. So actually, the poverty rate, the overall poverty rate increased during the Great, Great Recession, which is not a surprise, um, and, and, and kind of went up to about 15 percent. Since the, um, since, you know, the end of the Great Recession in 2010, 2011, the overall rate of poverty, uh, 
in terms of the annual rate has actually was coming down. And, and for last year, it was 10.5%, which was at a very low point. Um, but I, again, I think that this um, obscures the fact that lots of people over time are economically at risk of experiencing poverty. And as I said, the uh, the pandemic, um, you know, with the pandemic, when we see the poverty numbers for this year, that it certainly is going to increase um, pretty pretty significantly. Um, and I think what that gets at is that to a large extent, the reason why poverty rates go up and down has to do with, to a large extent, how well the economy is doing. Um, and I, I'm sure we can talk about kind of these more structural reasons for why poverty exists. But clearly the pandemic has, it will, um, and, and in the future is going to continue to exacerbate the rates of poverty. Lawrence, can you connect poverty to social mobility, and to life expectancy. When I think of poverty or the economic condition of fellow Americans, brothers, sisters, neighbors, family members, I think of it in terms of civil society and whether we preserve civil society. And that is co-equally dependent upon social mobility and life expectancy. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to think of this question of, of poverty or, or the economic condition of Americans um, looking at these statistics that have also declined in recent years, which is social mobility and life expectancy. Well, there's no doubt that both are tied to uh, socioeconomic status. Let me let me start with the question of social mobility. So you're, you're absolutely correct that those who start out at the bottom of the income distribution have a much harder time of rising out. And this is somewhat connected to our discussion of poverty intensity that you, you know, the previous question. One of the reasons why, and if you compare the U.S. to other wealthy countries, you know, other OECD countries, uh, we don't fare very well when it comes to social mobility. So one of the ways we measure that is through something called an IGE, an intergenerational elasticity. And so we don't fare very well. Um, but if you actually look at the, the sort of nuance in the data, um, Bosch Mazumder at the, the Fed of Chicago has done pretty good work on this. If you actually look at the nuances in that data, what you find is we actually wouldn't be that much worse than many of those countries if it wasn't for the fact that it's hard to rise from the bottom and hard to fall from the top. There's a lot of mobility in the middle. So the U.S. isn't just sort of universally a bad social mobility country. It's really because of what we allow to happen at the top and the bottom. And so there's a whole variety of reasons for that. Uh, one of the big reasons, and I, I think if we could solve these problems concurrently, uh, the society would be much better off for it, has to do with racial inequality and has to do with the problem of concentrated disadvantage. So, and there's lots of good work on this, and I certainly... Um, you know, this pod is more about, you know, poorly understood, but um, there's great work by Patrick Sharkey, for instance, which shows that 78%, three quarters of African-American children in the U.S. grow up in highly disadvantaged neighborhoods, but only 5% of white children. So if we were to eliminate that, would we be able to unlock some of the grip, uh, you know, that's keeping people from move, moving from the bottom to the middle and to the top? 
that makes us a lower mobility country compared to other OECD countries? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. So yes, we're a low mobility country. A big part of that has to do with the stickiness they call it, economists call it, the top and the bottom. Um, and a, a big part of unlocking that, I think, is solving the problem of racial inequality. Your second question, though, um, other aspects, sort of you know, non-economic aspects like health, very, very important. There's been a lot of great work on this. Um, there's a great book, I think it's called Deaths of Despair, um, which looks at this question of, you know, uh, these these economic indicators have been closely followed by other social indicators of, you know, hopelessness and and suicide and and substance abuse, et cetera. So absolutely they're connected. We're not faring well. And a big reason we're not faring well is because we're making it hard for people, marginalized people to, to rise up. And I think just to sort of add on to that is um, we can also think about mobility in another context. And that is to what extent is each generation doing better economically than the previous generation? And what we found, and this is, uh, Lawrence mentioned some economists, this is the, the work of Raj Chetty. And what he's shown is that actually for more recent generations, it's becoming harder and harder for them to do better than their parents. So for those who were born in 1940, about 90% of them would do better economically than their, than their parents did. By 1980, that's only about 50%. And so I've talked about in other, in other work, the idea of the American dream. And one concept there is that uh, the American dream is about every, every generation doing better than the prior generation. And that's becoming harder and harder to do in the United States. So I think that gets back to your point that you're raising about things getting more difficult, particularly in the last decade or so. And I would, I would just add to that, that this is an area, at least conceptually, at least in the abstract, that Republicans and Democrats, left and right, red and blue, we agree on that it's just a part of the American ethos that we should all have a quality of opportunity. So I think where we fall down somewhat in this, in the public and, and the political discourse about this is what opportunity means. And we can disagree about whether somebody has equal opportunity or not. But you know, I think it's rather clear, and I think Mark thinks this as well, that when you look at these data, that we are failing in providing everybody equal opportunity. And that is something that we, I think we share across the political spectrum as just sort of the general project of what America is. And so it should be something we can all agree that needs to be addressed. What I think is poorly understood about the conditions that you both are describing over the last decade, but probably extending beyond 10 years, maybe the last several decades, is that that social mobility index that you're alluding to was not always so extremely inferior to other developed nations or democracies. So when we think of a new presidential administration that has to get smart about poverty and confronting it, uh, from where do you, Mark, derive most inspiration in resetting public policy uh, if it is the kind of FDR, LBJ style programs or something else that is going to es establish for the American people some means to ex extricate ourselves from the current condition, knowing that we were not always inferior on this question of social mobility. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point, which is um, 
uh, that we, we were not always um, so low on this question of social and economic mobility. In fact, in the past, we were one of the leaders in terms of having an open structure, people being able to, to go across um, class lines. So, um, so I would say I'm, I'm actually quite hopeful with the new Biden administration. They've actually proposed some, a couple of ideas that I think are, are for, you know, the United States, um, somewhat radical. So they proposed and, and actually so has Mitt Romney on the other side of the aisle, the idea of a child allowance. This is a policy that's been around in European countries for decades. But the idea here is kind of a variation on the universal basic income idea. And that is, if you have children, you should be able to get some assistance from uh, from the government for for, uh, you know, most folks. Uh, I think the the, the uh, dividing line is, you know, 400 below four hundred thousand um, dollars. That's a way of of actually being very direct in terms of addressing poverty. Poverty is basically a lack of money and getting money into folks hands is a very direct way of doing that. So the fact that the Biden administration has proposed this in their stimulus package, the fact that Mitt Romney has proposed this as well um, from the Republican side, I think is actually um, pretty, pretty, um, pretty hopeful in a way. The other thing that I would say right off the bat, and, and that also President Biden has, has proposed, is raising the minimum wage to a livable wage. Um, it's simply wrong that people are working full time and fall into poverty. Um, that, that's just, that just seems un-American. And so, um, as we know, the minimum wage hasn't been raised since 2009. It's still $7.25 an hour. If you're working at the minimum wage, almost by definition, you're in poverty. So getting that up to more of a livable wage and then indexing it to inflation so that it keeps up with the cost of living each year, like we do with Social Security, would be a very, would be another really good start. So I think those two things are very, very positive um, uh, out of the gate for the for the Biden administration. Lawrence, yeah, I, would just, I would just add there are, there are a variety of things that we can do to improve the situation. Um, I think of it, and there's a variety of, of factors here, but I think certainly social policy. So if you look at other wealthy countries, one of the big reasons why they don't have child poverty to the extent that we have it is not just that they have better social spending, but that it is the sort of targeted spending at families with children. They tend not to sort of belabor and, and sort of focus on the sins of the parents like we do in the U.S. We're very much caught up in whether people are working, whether or not they can pass a drug test, those sorts of things. Uh, in many other countries, the question is just, is there a child there? If there is, we're going to invest resources in that child because we know society benefits from that investment. So the social policy side of it's important. I am hopeful because I think that idea of child allowances would seem kind of anathema to many folks on the right side of the aisle in years past. And now I'm seeing them talk about it in a way that I just didn't. I mean, there was you know the maker and taker language from uh, Romney and Ryan just a few years back. So that's certainly changed. Another thing that I've seen change, which is the structure of opportunity at the community and neighborhood level, um, just as one example of that gives me hope, and there's lots to not be hopeful about, but one thing that gives me hope is in recent years, how left and right have joined uh, with a common, in common cause in trying to address mass incarceration. Again, that was something that was much more polarized in years past, and, and that really relates to the issue of concentrated disadvantage and to community you know, sort of piling up disadvantages in, in various communities, particularly non-white communities. And so, you know, if we're seeing that kind of bipartisan support for social policy and for, and, and for addressing community disadvantage, 
Um, I do. I actually do feel pretty hopeful, more hopeful than I have in a long time. Notwithstanding all that hope is the reality that the American capitalistic system or the conditions that seem to tolerate the vast inequality and specifically the poverty and social immobility, it seems as though you could have a minimum wage, you could have universal basic income, you could even have more legislated economic security like a social security system across the demographic. And with the structural inequities, specifically the racial one that Lawrence mentioned, and also the societal one of capitalistic practices on steroids, monolithic, monopolistic, cannibalistic organs uh, that feed and feed billions that you could take all of those steps and still not be able to integrate enough anti-poverty measures to reignite social mobility. So I suppose my final question to you, Mark, is knowing that reality, if you accept it, that you could have an economic security act like a social security, you could have UBI and minimum wage increases, and still the structural inequalities would be far too pervasive. What say you? What, What do you do? So um, I guess as you were talking, what I was thinking was, um, you know, if we think, yes, we're in a capitalist system, we have an economy. If we really want to be, have a productive economy, we need to invest in our people. That That's the best way to really grow an economy. And what we've been doing over long periods of time is disinvesting in a significant percentage of the population. So it's really important to think about this not only as the right thing to do to address poverty, but it's also the smart thing to do. And I'll just give you one quick example of that. I did a study a couple of years ago that, that estimated what the economic cost of childhood poverty in the United States was. What does it cost us all? And the estimate, and, and, and the reason why we, what we looked at were rising costs in terms of um, healthcare costs, less economic productivity when children become adults, and criminal justice costs. And what we found was that childhood poverty cost the United States a little bit over $1 trillion a year. And the reason is because we're paying for poverty on the back end of the problem rather than the front end. And it's always much more economically makes a lot more economic sense to invest in a problem on the front end. So what I think we're proposing here in the book is not only uh, what what we should do from a moral perspective, but also what we should be doing from an economic perspective. It makes us a stronger country and a stronger um, economy as well. I would just add one uh, comment to that, which is, um, you know, I don't want to be overly hopeful and I don't want to be giving the wrong impression, but I will say that, you know, Americans are pretty social democratic in their preferences. Uh, they're moving into a more social democratic direction and they may have to drag their politicians sort of, you know, kicking and screaming in terms of policy in that direction. Um, but to, to be a little more pessimistic and to address what you brought up previously, uh, a colleague of mine, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, he describes uh, racial inequality like a game of whack-a-mole. 
So, you know, you, uh, you have a targeted policy, which takes care of one particular issue. And then because you have a deeply racist system, it sort of rears its head in another way. So I think you're absolutely correct. I think the social democratic policies can give us a much kinder version of capitalism and can solve many of these problems. But I really, I, I am highly doubtful that we solve this problem on a large scale without, like I said, concurrently addressing the problem of racial inequality. So I would agree with you there. You know, realistically, what would be a target after four years of a Biden administration, Lawrence and Mark, in the waning minute we have, if you were to say, statistically, when you look at the data after these next three years of the Biden administration, looking towards the next political election cycle, uh, or even in the next two years, realistically, what do you think can change? Well, I would, I mean, a couple quick things. I would say, um, let's try, let's target poverty and let's try to reduce the extent of poverty in this country. Let's, let's try to get this down below double digits. Um, the other thing that I, I would like to see is a reversal in terms of the, uh, the amount of income and wealth inequality. Um, and I think, uh, if we can start down that path, it, it would be very, very positive. Lawrence, what do you think? I mean, certainly when it comes to some of the things we've talked about so far in terms of the, the child allowance, that would be a dream. I don't know that I would target a number, but there are a number of policies that I have seen proposed that I think are realistic policies that I think are a step in the right direction. So um, they've talked about lowering the, med- the age of uh, Medicare to age 60 and as a way to sort of incrementally move towards universal health care. Um, I think that's a very positive step. So long term, I think that you know helps get you where you want to go. There have been plenty of policies aimed at targeting communities. So you know, opportunity zones, economic opportunity zones, they didn't work particularly well. You know, the record's not very good. I think we should move more towards a different model, possibly you know vouchers and you know, moving to opportunity and those sorts of things. But um, you know, these are all steps in the right direction, and these are all things that Americans support. These are not unpopular programs. So. Um, all these things are have a pretty wide base of support. It's really a matter of the political will to do it. And that's probably why I'm most hopeful is because the country supports most of what we're talking about. It's just our, our political system is dysfunctional and unfortunately doesn't translate those preferences into policies. But, you know, the people are there and eventually they're going to have to be heard. Lawrence Eppard and Mark Rank, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Alexander.